0: to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, hello, everybody. It is Wednesday night, and it is time for Friends in Fiction. It is our favorite night of the week, and we hope it is for you too.
1: So I am Kristen Harmel.
2: I'm Christy Woodson
1: Hardy <laughs> yes yes you are I am Patty Callahan Henry and I'm Mary Kay K. Andrews Sorry. coming in high. <laughs>
0: it's only episode 161 you would you, you know what why would we have the opening job I know
2: the order I mean it's just it's tricky
1: it's very confusing hate. yeah
0: Oh, and this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we'll be welcoming Julia Kelly with her latest, The Lost English Girl, which just came out yesterday, and Jennifer Rosner with her newest, Once We Were Home, which is out next week. And also, Patty will be announcing her book tour tonight, which we're so excited to talk about. But before we begin, let's raise a glass, ladies, ladies who are in possession of a glass, to something very special. So this week, the Friends in Fiction Facebook group hit an astonishing 125,000 members. In fact, I just looked, we're at 126,000. Oh we my God. It's amazing. We cannot believe it. So cheers to that, ladies. Cheers. Cheers,
3: cheers. to everyone out there. To everyone out, out there. Everybody. Yes. Yep. Yes. And we want to thank all of you who are out there who turn in each Wednesday. And also if you're tuning in the next day, if you're in a different time zone, if you're tuning in and watching us the next day. That counts, too. And all of you who are active on the page, we really love hearing from you and love hearing about what you're reading.
2: Yeah, we're so grateful, and we're so honored to be a part of this community
1: with all of you. Can you believe it? We're coming up on our three-year anniversary next month. Remember when we said we're going to do this for a couple weeks? I mean... So. <laughs> three years so there is plenty more celebration in store and speaking of celebration we are going to have to lift our glasses which I know is a huge ordeal but (laughs) we're going to have to lift those glasses a second time to our Christie, because the wedding veil just came out in paperback yesterday
2: My, my plastic cup is a little sad but it does have champagne in it it was That's my welcome nice. plastic cup when I got here. So that was nice.
3: It counts. Nice. nice. Yeah. Now we'll talk about a, this a little bit later in the show. And as you know, we here at Friends in Fiction, we care deeply about bringing you incredible authors like Christy. <laughs> 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 what? Christy, you incredible author? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Holla. <hot Hala>. <laughs> All right, you're never going to let me live that down, ever. <laughs> you sent me, what did you send me? Your shirt that said, Hala? Oh, yeah, wedding. I think so. That I think Kristen, <laughs> And we care about bringing you hot wreaths like the wedding veil. And it. fascinating it's interviews. So Stop interrupting me. I'm I sorry. It's
2: really cute. Thank you. I appreciate it. I really like it. It was very nice. I didn't know. I love it.
3: All while supporting indie bookstores. And one way you can help us help indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or to visit our own Friends and Fiction Bookshop.org page, where you can find Jennifer's and Julia's books and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. And I just want to say, as an aside, um, pre orders count so much. Oh, I know. Um, for the success of a book. So, you know, there's some ladies here that got some books coming on, and we're um, <laughs> gonna love you better than chocolate if you pre order. Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe and that's a tall
3: order. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And of course, by now, you probably know that we also have a book club on a separate Facebook page called the Friends in Fiction Official Book Club with Brenda and Lisa. But do you know how much fun they're having? Coming up next, our fearless book club leaders, Brenda Gardner and Lisa Harrison, will be discussing The House of Eve with author Sadiqa Johnson on March 20th at 7 p.m. Of course, you know that Sadiqa's book was a Reese Witherspoon pick and an instant New York Times bestseller. She was right here to celebrate with us, which was so fun. Plus, she's a longtime Friends and Fiction favorite, so you won't want to miss that chat.
1: I know she's such a pleasure to talk to. I mean, you always walk away feeling better than when you came in. And of course we have our writer's block podcast that drops every Friday on our Facebook page. We'll always post a link to the newest episode, or you can find it on our friends and fiction podcast channel. For Our most recent episode, Ron and Meg talked to Rebecca Mackay about her newest. I have some questions for you. This book has been everywhere and everybody who's read it is madly in love with it. So that's a great episode. And then coming this Friday, Ron and I will be talking to Jessa Maxwell about her new novel, her debut, The Golden Spoon, which is a uh, Sarah Says. I guess that's Sarah Jessica Parker, right? That is her pick. So listen, oh. review, subscribe, and tell a friend if you
3: like what you hear. And here at Friends in Fiction, as you can tell, except for Christy's heartbreakingly sad motel room, we are all about books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you you know, from our, from our separate Friends in Fiction book club to our podcast, and of course, this show is run by the four of us, and all of whom happen to have brand new books out in 2023. Did I already mention that? I'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might want to get signed first editions of these books. So listen up. Right now, you can head over to Booktown with an E on the end, booktown.com, and find our Friends in Fiction first edition subscription. Why should you order this package? Because it comes with four books spread over four separate months, kind of like the book that keeps on giving. The book that keeps on giving. Mostly because I told you to. <laughs> yeah. So I pre-order our books, damn it. I'm gonna get new shirts made that say pre-order our books. Damn it. Damn it. Well, also because we're gonna give you a little bribe, like a gift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not only it's a gift that's a bribe. Not only will you get signed first <laughs> <versus> edition <laughs> hardcover copies of each of our books the week of their releases, but you'll also get a limited edition kitchen towel that says dinner can wait. It's time for friends and fiction. And you can order from Booktown with an E on the N right now at booktown.com. All right, ladies.
0: Let's start tonight by introducing our first guest of the evening, Julia Kelly.
1: Julia is the international best-selling author of several historical fiction and historical mystery novels about the extraordinary stories of the past, including The Last Dance of the Debutante, the last garden in England, which I adored, and the light over
3: London. Her books have been translated into thirteen languages. In addition to writing, she's been an Emmy-nominated producer, journalist, marketing professional, and even a tea waitress, waitress for one <laughs> summer. I wonder if she'd come over here and pour my tea. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah.
2: Julia called Los Angeles, Iowa, and New York City home before settling in London. Her new novel, The Lost English Girl, was just released yesterday and she's joining us tonight from England where it is past midnight. So, oh my goodness, let's get her out of here. Sean, can you bring
4: Julia?
2: (laughs)
0: Hi,
4: Julia. Hi, Hi, everyone. Thank
0: Thank you so much for having me. Oh, oh, thanks for love being it. here. It's We're so good nice to see to you real. again. So welcome. It um we are so excited to dive in tonight with you, um, talking about this book. But lately we've been loving the idea of kicking things off with a group discussion with our first guest. So tonight I would like to start with this because you've obviously found a home in writing about the UK, which you were writing mm-hmm. about long before you located there permanently. I think all of us have been drawn to certain geographical areas, though mm-hmm. that focus has sometimes changed during our careers. Yeah. So I would love to start tonight before we dive in talking about Julia's great new book, which I loved. Um, I'd love to ask each of you this, what is the place you're drawn to writing about now? And why do you think you feel such a strong pull to set stories there? Patty, do you want to start us
1: off? I would. Um, You know, my first, I think, 10 books were all set in the South, which is obviously where I live, where my family spends their time, especially on the coast of South Carolina. But my last five books have been set in England. And what happened is I started writing about um, Joy Davidman and becoming Mrs. Lewis and went there for a research trip. And I'd been to England numerous times before, but I've fell so in love with the area, with the landscape, the geography, um, the wildness of it. And it's hard to explain why you love a geography I have a line in one of my books that says, landscape is memory and memory is landscape. And I just think certain landscapes either resonate with us or don't. Mm -hmm. And so my new novel, The Secret Book of Flora Lee, is set in the countryside of England because I am enamored, enchanted, all the great things about that kind of landscape. And honestly, it gives me an excuse to go there a lot. (laughs) the best and I love the history of it like there's the deep-rooted history of it is fascinating to me and no matter what place I pick in England the history finds its way into the story because it's so so fascinating
0: yeah yeah that's so true how about you Mary Kay
3: well like Patty most of my novels all of them really have been set in the south well I will say my forthcoming book bright lights big Christmas starts in the south but ends up um in Greenwich Village Um, But I've had an idea kind of tickling my subconscious. Um, Both of my paternal grandparents were Irish immigrants. They both came to Chicago fresh off boat, as we say. And I have an idea now for a book set in Ireland, which I eventually really hope to write. It's amazing you know, how that. things pull at us, like a landscape. Yeah. It's
1: like a person. It's yeah, real. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's For why sure. I wanted to talk about it. I mean, I just, I think, I think place is so important in books and yeah. And, yeah. We, and when your heart is in a place, I think it just changes the way you write about it. Right. And I know, I know so
3: little about my grandparents' um, yeah. past. They didn't, yeah. they didn't want to talk about that. Um, yeah. um, it wasn't, it wasn't a happy time. And then they died when I was, you know, fairly young. Yeah. Um, That's so interesting to hear that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. How about, how about you, Christy? Um, Well, I mean, I love to write about small Southern towns. I just, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it was until I grew up a little bit and got a little bit older that I realized that like some of the things that just are very normal and commonplace to me are not normal. (laughs) (laughs) And it's always like, so it's so funny. I'm working on a book right now. I'm working on edits. And there'll be all these little comments in the margins from my editor. Like, I don't think this is realistic or like, you know, people just like walking in your back door. And I'm like, I, what? Like, it's not, well, it happens in my house every day. Like, I'm really confused. it. It's just funny. Like the things yes. that she'll be like, does this really happen? And I'm like, yeah, it's yes. like, that's just a really small example. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I don't know. There's just something about it that I think is kind of special and fleeting and changing. And so, you know, I love writing yeah. about that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And how about you, Julia? You um you've become so known for writing about Britain now. Can you talk to us a little bit about why that feels like such a perfect fit for you?
4: Well, I think like Patty, you know, I have always been drawn to the UK and I have a family connection uh to the UK. Yeah. Now I live here. So I think that's definitely part of it. But um with the Lost English Girl in particular, I, I always like writing about places that i have a connection to and a love for and so with this yeah. book it's the family connection of Liverpool where my mother is from and where all of these family stories have come from and i've sort of grown up um with with this as part of my part of my background so getting to explore that and research it and kind of write a bit of a love letter to the city was really oh, a lot nice. of fun yeah. I I enjoyed that so
0: much in your book, Julia. I've been to Liverpool and I, you know, I've experienced it as a Beatles fan, right? Like that's what, that's what a lot of people go to Liverpool for now. But um, I I really was drawn to reading your book too, because that, I, I, that city charmed me. So um, it was great, great to read about the past of that city. And of course, for me, um, when we're talking about writing about places we love, it's Paris. Um, All of you know, where I lived for a brief time 20 years ago. Um, I can't believe it's been almost 20 years and where I think a piece of my heart and soul has always remained i think sometimes yeah. you find yourself in a place where you belong you can't really explain why you belong there except actually that's where um my maternal uh, grandmother is um is from her her mother yeah. was a world war one bride in paris and um okay. lived just a few blocks away from where i lived which i didn't know until after i had come home so i don't know i think very we- cool find pieces of our past when we don't expect, but enough Mm -hmm. about that. Let us dig into talking about the lost English girl, which just came out yesterday. Now, Julia, the book is about a young woman named Viv Byrne raised in a strict Catholic family who finds herself pregnant after a fling with Joshua Levinson, a Jewish man who dreams of becoming a jazz musician and who walks out of her life soon after their wedding. So five Mm -hmm. years later, just as world war II is beginning Viv is faced with the impossible choice to evacuate her daughter, Maggie, to the countryside. But without spoilers, it is not as safe there as Viv had hoped. So, Julia, we would love to talk about origins behind novels. And I know, and you just mentioned a a little bit of this, you actually have a family connection to a couple of the different storylines in this book. Can you talk to us about how your own family history inspired pieces of the novel? And what is the book really about at its heart?
4: Absolutely. So, you know, I love taking family stories as a little seed of inspiration um, because often and in the case of this story, everybody who is involved has passed away. So we don't know the answers to a lot of questions that I have. And I know a lot of my family has. So the family story is that my relative uh, was a young Catholic girl who became pregnant out of wedlock by a young Jewish man. We don't know if it was a fling, if they were in love. We don't know anything about them as a couple, except that um, although interfaith marriage at the time to their families was a really big deal and really frowned upon, having an illegitimate child was even more so. And so the families brought them together, they married, and then they were separated on their wedding day, and they never saw each other again, as far as we know. And as an author, that is just, that is such a a big question mark it's a big what if you know yeah. uh, all of these questions about you know what if they had been allowed to stay together yeah. how did they feel about it what happened to the child all of these yeah. things that we just yeah. we just don't know the answers to so it's very much a novel and these are very much fictional characters but the sort of first inspiration for the book absolutely came from something that that happened in the past i love,
1: love that. that very cool very cool I, I mean, I, you're talking about it and I'm rattling through like all family stories and thinking, yeah. I don't have anything that interesting. <laughs> like, and I keep thinking if I go back and find, you know, I'm, I'm obviously UK and Irish descendant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would just find a bunch of sheep farmers, which is also really cool. <laughs> you but never I, know.
4: You that's never really, know. I, say.
1: I don't think I'm a countess or anything. <laughs> Oh my gosh, if you are, are we
2: going to have to start calling you like Countess Patty or something? <laughs>
1: if that was true, I would already be <laughs> that. <Lady Patty>. <laughs> so in your book, The Evacuation of British Children to the Countryside during World War II, is at the core of it. And it's also, as we know, the core of the secret book of Flora Lee. But you and I tackled, when we found out we were both writing about it, I told you about my book and you, you saw the announcement and you emailed me and you said, by the way, that's what I'm <laughs> writing about. And we were like, wow, the universal unconscious. But you and I tackled the subject in completely different ways. Yep, And in a way, because both books trace different experiences, they could be companion books. So hint, hint, book clubs. Yes. I but <laughs> I tell this story from a child, a child who was evacuated and now an adult. And you tell it from the parent's point of view. So I want you to talk to us because I I know we did a lot of the same research, but also our research was very different mm-hmm. because we were approaching it from different angles. I want you to talk about the research you did, both in your family and in reading about Operation Pied Piper and about these impossible choices that parents had to make.
4: Well, I think that's really what it comes down to. It's it's being interested in people who are put into these incredible situations. So for instance, Viv and and Joshua on their wedding day and and the separation. And then later on in Viv's life, she has to also make this decision about what is she going to do for her daughter? Is she going to keep her with her in a city that potentially could be at high risk of bombing? And it it was, it was bombed heavily during the war. Or is she going to send her daughter away to the countryside where she's supposed to be kept safe and, you know, be away from all these things, but she also has to be away from her mother. And I just, I just think about how harder decision that would have had to have been as a parent. So, you know, I also wanted to explore, you know, what would that have meant for the children? What would it have meant for the parents? What would it have done to everybody? And there was a wonderful book um, that I don't know if you used as well. I suspect you might've called when the children came home. I suspect it's on my bookshelf. It's on your bookshelf. <laughs> so yeah. When when the Children Came Home by Juliet Summers is fascinating because it talks about the psychological impact that this had on Britain and on these children and these parents individually. So I opened the book up thinking this is going to be a book about the mass evacuations and sort of more of a traditional history. And really, it's a lot of stories about what this did to people. And some people had fantastic experiences. They loved their foster families. And some people didn't. And some people had really negative experiences. There was tension between family members. It's such an interesting and difficult time, I think, to think about as an author. And I think those are the moments really where you can find really great um, moments for your characters and conflict and create a really compelling book out of that. Hmm. And what was
1: fascinating to me, because I know we did the same research on this part and told it from two completely different perspectives, but some children loved it so much they didn't want to go home. Yes. And some children were so miserable they couldn't wait to get home or beg their parents to come get them. Mm-hmm. Some children never went home. It is it, it that wow. whole evacuation because millions of children were evacuated.
4: I
2: just so. can't even wrap my yeah. mind around. Yeah, I know, around,
4: yep. uh, I know. I know. Well, and and within my own family, I had um, aunts and uncles who were evacuated because uh, they were of of school age and they were not housed in the same place and they had completely Uh, different experiences. So even within the same family, you could have children who had divergent experiences, you know, with their foster families. So I think it really um, it's as an author, it's a really, really great subject to explore. And as you say, you know, there's so many different perspectives, so many different ways yeah. you can tell that story. And we have realized that also Hazel Gaynor, who is a really talented author, has also written an evacuated children's story that's completely different completely from what we've different. done as well. Yes. So there's just, there's so much there. And, you know, talk about. There's fresh. Thousands. There's so that. many Absolutely. stories to yeah. tell. I mean, it's yeah. just
2: really, it's a really well, unique and-
4: and for what it's worth, I have read
0: all three, and they are as different oh. as they could possibly be. You know what I mean? Like, I'm impressed. like yes, that, yes, but I, I, but I mean, mm-hmm. they take this, they take the same kind of core idea, but each of you goes off in a direction that mm-hmm. that is so intrinsic to who you are as a writer. So you yeah. know, it, I, it, I, it's incredible, but they are all three books everybody should read together, I think. (laughs)
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I love this companion (laughs) idea. Yeah.
2: Well, Julia, in the novel, Viv's parents are vehemently opposed to Viv being with Joshua because she's Catholic and he's Jewish. So can you talk a bit about why this is something that you wanted to tackle and how were you able to go about researching the attitudes about religion in 1940s Liverpool?
4: Well, I think, you know, when it comes to Viv's parents, they're very much a product of their, um, their community. So the, the working class community in Liverpool at the time was very tight knit, and could be very, um, based around your religion as well so you would have gone to the same church as you know the other people in your community you would know the same people you would have been expected to marry within that community as well and so the idea of marrying outside of that and marrying a jewish man would have been really difficult, I think, for a lot of families. And, and likewise, in the other direction as well, um, you know, there were, are Jewish families who would not have been happy about a Catholic girl entering into the family, sure. especially through getting pregnant outside outside yeah. of wedlock. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I'm always interested in these stories about women on kind of the fringes of society or doing something a little bit different than what's expected of them. And so I was really lucky. I had um, fantastic uh, uh, contacts with two academics um, who were really generous with their time and they specialize in this era and in relationships between the Jewish community in Britain And, um, and other people. And so they talked to me specifically about what was going on in Liverpool at the time and gave me some of that context and that perspective. And one of them actually did a lot of her dissertation work focused, she had a chapter that focused specifically on interfaith marriage. Mm -hmm. And she was wonderful to talk to because she talked about how you know, you can think about everybody having the same attitude because, you know, this is what a religion dictates. But the reality is these are individuals and they're individual families also. So every family is going to approach this differently. And it it really helped give me a bit of perspective about trying to make this story feel like the Levinson family has their own reasons for doing things, their own reasons for wanting to, um, you know, bring Viv into the family and bring her daughter into the family, um, and be more welcoming than perhaps Viv's family was towards uh, towards Joshua and his family. So, you know, getting at some of those differences uh, was was really important for that. And of course, you know, using sensitivity readers, and um, I'm I'm not uh, Catholic or Jewish, so I really wanted to make sure I was being respectful of those communities and those experiences. Um, I, my mother uh, grew up in this in, in the Catholic community in Liverpool, so she was a wonderful resource. Um, and I also had a fantastic um, couple of sensitivity readers um, looking at the um, parts of the story related to the Jewish faith. Um, so it was it was a lot of research and a lot of work, but work I was really happy to do because I think it really helped bring those characters to life. For sure. Well, on that note, um, in the novel,
2: Joshua endures not only the prejudice of Viv's parents, but also many insults being hurled his way because of his religion. So do you think there's a message in your book about looking past our differences that's still relevant today?
4: I hope so. And I hope, you know, one of the things that I always talk to um, historical fiction readers about is how I think historical fiction can really, and and all fiction, but um, can really give us a a sense of empathy for people who have had a different experience than us, because when you read historical fiction, by the very nature of it happening, um, you know, in a different time period, most of us have not had that experience. And so we have to sort of open ourselves up and, um, learn about what it is that somebody else might have gone through. So my hope is that people will walk away from this book and think about, um, you know, why it is that some people have this very entrenched idea of how things must be and how opening yourself up a bit and changing that perspective can really sort of
3: bring a whole new light into your life. Yeah,
4: absolutely.
3: Now I'd like to talk and ask you about Viv's sister, Kate. Who clearly loves her sister Viv and wants to do right by her? But she also basks in being the favorite daughter. And without spoiler like me. <laughs> <laughs> you did a book called that, didn't you? Um <laughs> uh, without spoilers, she makes a decision that sets a course for both Viv's life and that of her daughter Maggie. Could you talk to us a little bit about the character of Kate? Was she always as complicated, or did she start as sort of just a foil? Um, for Viv, in their parents' eyes, and evolve into somebody who played a bigger role. So, and nobody has asked me about Kate, and I'm so glad you have, because Kate started out
4: as two different sisters, Kate and Ellie, and um, I was partway through writing the first draft, and Kate was very much the good sister, and Ellie was very much the disapproving sister. And I realized that I needed to make them into one person um, for a lot of reasons, partially my own sanity and trying to keep this (laughs) draft moving. Um, But I wanted Kate to have a slightly more complicated relationship with her sister than um, just being a straightforward uh, cheerleader for her throughout the whole book. And so I did give Kate this sort of decision that she makes. She thinks she's doing the right thing, but ultimately it, it really, as you say, it changes the course of of Viv's life for a number of years. Um, And I wanted everybody in this book to have a reason why they thought that what they were doing was the right thing. Everybody is trying to protect the people they love and keep them safe and um, sort of do the right thing by them. But often they're not thinking about what that other person wants, and they're not accounting for other perspectives. And without too many spoilers, I think that's definitely what Kate is trying to do um, when she makes that decision. And, uh, and and I also think, you know, I'm a sister. I don't know how many of you have siblings, but yep. I love my sister dearly, but we can get on each other's nerves and we can, you know, there is nobody like your s- sister in terms of just having a moment of being like, what are you talking about? You just, you know, yeah. you just stop whinging and, you know, figure out what you need to figure out. And Kate also serves that purpose as well. She kind of gives her a bit of a talking too. I
3: love it. Well, speaking of complicated women, can you talk to us about the Evelyn, is it Evelyn or Evelyn? Fern, Evelyn. Evelyn Redfern series that you're working on.
4: Yes, so this is um, this is my first foray into historical mystery. I'm very excited about it. Um, so the first book, A Trader in Whitehall, comes out in October, and it's about Evelyn Redfern, who is a young woman, uh, sort of making her way in the world. She has a bit of a scandalous past uh, through her family, but at the um, just before the Blitz is about to hit in London, she is offered a job um, working as a typist in Churchill's war rooms. Um, But it comes with a bit of a twist. She's meant to be the eyes and ears of a kind of mysterious family friend. So she goes in not really knowing what exactly she's looking for. And then somebody's brutally murdered in the middle of the the cabinet war rooms, which is supposed to be one of the most secure places in Britain and secretive places. And so she um, realizes very quickly that the men sent to investigate this woman's murder are not doing a great job and they're not accounting for everything. So she's a great lover of mystery novels and she takes it upon herself to solve the mystery and launches her into what I hope will be a very, um, very long series of adventures sounds like my that's uh, so exciting it does. That is yeah. exciting
0: gosh julia you're so busy so um before we let you go are there uh, any events especially with the book just having come out that you want our listeners to know about or are you going to be online anywhere else um and where can our listeners find out more about you this book and your upcoming books
4: Absolutely. So I have an events page on my website, um, which is Julia and everything's listed up there. Um, I do have an event coming up at the end of the month with uh, book club favorites, which will be a Facebook live. Um, So obviously very familiar to to your viewers um, (laughs) and all the information's over there.
0: Wonderful. Well, Julia, it was so lovely to see you, but we know it is now 1231 in the morning where you are and you're probably really tired. And so I think it is time to let you go. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank, you,
1: thank you so much, so much for, for having for being me. With thank
4: us you tonight. for coming. Julia, we love
1: seeing you. Congratulations
4: on pub week. Thank you yeah. so much. It is absolutely worth staying up late to chat with you guys. It's so much. Oh, no. I'm so happy to see your face.
2: I, I can't believe you're so articulate at twelve thirty one in the morning. I would be like,
4: exactly. uh, what's the bug called again? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Have I is, do do I have a I sister know. in the book? Exactly? I can't remember. <laughs> yes.
5: <laughs> all right Thank well
0: julia you sweet sweet dreams thanks, dream. thanks for being here good Thank night. You, night, night congratulations julia. okay huh. now everybody out there do not go anywhere because coming up in just a few minutes we have author jennifer rosner whose latest once we were home is one of the most thought-provoking pieces of historical fiction i've read in a long time it just asks so many questions that are just impossible to consider but we'll dig into all that but first a few quick things to tell you about
3: well, I don't know if you've heard, but Christie's <laughs> The Wedding Veil, released in paperback yesterday. What's that? Yes, The Wedding yesterday. Veil, her day. It's a story of four generations of women bound by a beautiful wedding veil in a connection to the famous Vanderbilt family. It was Christie's first historical contemporary novel. And it's the perfect read for spring. And best of all, you can grab it at our bookshop.org page.
2: That's true. It's a great place to grab it. Or I'm actually in Florida right now, hence my lovely backdrop. Mm -hmm. And if you would like a signed or personalized copy, you can order from our friend Rebecca at Macintosh Books. You might remember us talking about her earlier in the year because her store was just completely destroyed um, in the hurricane, her store on Sanibel Island. So she is um, very determined not to let let this get her down. And she is set up in a temporary location in Fort Myers. And we're so glad that she's back. And Um, love being able to support her any way we can. So speaking of in-person events, we want to make sure that you know about all the in-person events with the four of us coming up. You can always read about them in our individual newsletters um, and websites, um, and hopefully our Friends in Fiction one as well soon. But for a quick recap, we are going to be in Columbus, Ohio on April 26th, and then in Charleston, South Carolina at Buxton Books on May 1st to celebrate the launch of Patty's novel, The Secret Book of Flora Lee. Then on June 6th, we'll be in Huntsville, Alabama for Kristen's The Paris Daughter. And on July 20th, we'll be in Tampa at Oxford Exchange for my launch of the Summer of Songbirds. Tickets for all of those events are on sale now. And you should probably just come to all of them, is what I think. Yes,
1: yes, obviously. Just, you know, yeah. And there's more. So there's more for you to go to. <laughs> Not all. We'll be in Christie's Town of Beaufort, North Carolina on August 1st for another event with earlier.org, it will be a cancer fundraiser. And then in September, we will all be together again for Mary Kay's Bright Lights, Big Christmas. So we should have news about that soon. I and- certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we all hope so. I'm like looking at you through the screen like you can read my eyes. Do we have news yet? In other words, between April and September, the four of us will be together at least once each calendar month. And you, I know that you want to go to all of them. So make sure you are signed up for our Friends in Fiction newsletter and our individual newsletters so that you are the first to know about everything. Okay. And in-person events, I want to tell everyone, we are done and dusted. And I want to tell you all about The Secret Book of Flora Lee Book Tour. For years, y'all, we have been connecting over Zoom and on social media, and maybe connecting once in a while live events, but it has been a long time since we have gone out on full book tours. And all the the Zoom and social media has given us one of the most impactful thing of our life, which is Friends in Fiction. It is a poor replacement for face-to-face connection. And boy, oh man, oh wowzer, I am going to be on the road for, um, I'm counting how much longer, 25 days until I'm on the tour. I know. And (laughs) I will be on the road talking about the seeds of inspiration and the story. I will be visiting, I think, 25 cities in 18 days. Um, And then again in August. But we're just talking about May right now. And it all begins with Friends in Fiction launch in Charleston. I will be having so many fun in conversation partners, including the ladies on this screen and Diane Chamberlain and Paula McLean and Pam Jenoff and Amy Jo Burns and Mary Laura Philpott. So check out my website. You can get all the details and I hope to see you on the road going to be amazing
0: to see you on the road it's you're you're the first of us to go on a a tour this year right I know and a first
1: I mean we've tried to sneak in some during COVID like during those little windows we all got yeah but I think this is the first year that all of us will be able to To almost like the old days yeah Yeah, I'm really excited
0: I know and and you get to be our guinea pig and go first right (laughs) I know right I'm gonna be calling you (laughs) going what have I done Exactly, that's right. Yeah, yeah it, it won't be too late for me to be like, Okay, never mind. No, I'm just kidding. I was, I was gonna, gonna say, also, yeah. no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, it's gonna be
1: amazing for all of us. It, it, it's and
2: so is. fun, like, once you get there, you know, it's the preparation it's totally that is happy, like a little bit daunting. Yeah, but Absolutely.
5: then,
1: yeah, it's so fun. Well, okay, okay I'm, tell I'm me the truth, so all three of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, when you're getting ready to go on a tour like that, do you wake up at like three or four and think, how am I going to pack? No. Yo,
2: oh. I, I I mean, y'all, yo, you've got 20 texts for me. I'm only going to be gone for eight days. And like, I realized at nine 30 last night after Kristen's event that like my suitcase was 70 pounds and I had to ship my <gasps> luggage to the Boston leg of the tour. I mean, yep. Oh my yes. gosh. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. You don't think I, about I,
2: it, Kathy. Yeah.
3: No, I just throw some shit in a suitcase. Oh my
1: gosh. I'll have I have spreadsheets. I have spreadsheets. Oh sheets. my gosh. I have spreadsheets. Yeah, that's I true. And I've really already funny. started. Oh, and also, Christy and I will be together in Boston on Monday. Yeah. Oh, no, oh, Tuesday. Right. Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday and We'll be yeah, together. That's
0: very yeah. exciting. So, if you're in Boston, head yep. out to that. Exactly. So, yep. ladies, we have something to get excited about right now. Yep. I'm excited about all this stuff, but right now, I am excited to yep. take a deep dive with author Jennifer Rosner on her about to be released novel once we were home
3: yeah jennifer is the author of multiple novels including the yellow bird things which was a finalist for the national jewish book award
2: she also wrote a memoir if a tree falls a family's quest to hear and be heard about raising her deaf daughters in a hearing speaking world we'll be talking to her a bit about that book tonight too her children's book the mitten string was a sydney taylor book award notable
1: Jennifer's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Massachusetts Review, The Forward, Good Housekeeping, and loads of other places. She lives in Western Massachusetts with her family, and her new novel, Once We Were Home, is set to be released this coming Tuesday, March 14th. Sean, can you bring Jennifer on to join us? By the way, I love that cover. Mm-hmm. Isn't it pretty? I, I know, hi, Jennifer. Hi, it Jennifer. is beautiful.
0: Hi, Welcome, Jennifer. Nice Oh, we are so happy to have you here with us. Now, we're going to dive right into talking about this book. So, Once We Were Home tells the story of four people, Anna, Oscar, Roger, and Renata, all of whom experienced wrenching changes in their lives when they were children during World War II. Then we meet them later when they're young adults in Israel, looking back and trying to reconcile what happened. So Anna and Oscar were taken from the arms of the Christian family who took them in by a woman with a Jewish reclamation organization. Roger grew up in a monastery, and then the church tried to keep him from a relative seeking to retrieve him. And Renata is only just beginning to dig into her past after her mother's death. Can you talk to us about where the idea for this book came from? And then something we always like to ask, what is the novel really about?
5: Thank you. Um, Yeah, I'll tell you that the seed for this novel came when I was interviewing a person who had worked just after World War II to try to reclaim Jewish children who had been hidden in Christian settings. So the situation was that, you know, so many Jews had been lost during the war. She came back to her native Poland and saw that only 3% of Jewish children had even survived and most of them were in you know, Christian settings with assumed identities. And there was this real pull to try to reclaim them, to try to rebuild Judaism. Um, there was also some fear of Poland, so dangerous for Jews that they were trying to help get the children out. So there were a lot of different motivations for trying yeah. to reclaim the children. And um, when I had heard that case and I started researching and hearing about all these different kind of missions and operatives who were doing this work. And then I learned of these other cases where uh, there was like a historical case of a, of two children, two brothers who were in a convent who when relatives came to reclaim them, they were taken on the run over the Pyrenees to be able to save their Christian souls. And then another case uh, that I looked into a lot had to do with uh, the Germanizing of a lot of Polish children mm-hmm. who were just taken from their families to be Germanized and, you know, caliper tests and eye mm-hmm. charts and all these sort of things to see if they could pass these requirements and then be adopted into German families. And, um, you know, I was just fascinated by the ways in which we move children around according to adult beliefs about either what's best for them or best for a collective. And um, and I think I want to say that the really personal driver, in addition to this just being a really fascinating topic about the war and things that happened right after World War II and how children were treated and and continue to be treated as we notice that Ukrainian children are taken by Russian mm-hmm. soldiers and there's all these sort of things happening with children being moved. Mm-hmm. That um as it was mentioned, I'm the mom of two deaf daughters. And when we first learned of their deafness, we were making these decisions about, you know, whether what communication pathway and whether, you know, how would we would we all be signing, would we be speaking, etc. And we ran into some people's belief that our children should actually not even be with us, that we're hearing and they're deaf and that they don't belong with us. We have no way of raising them correctly, et cetera. And so what I did write an article for the New York times about, you know, how in most cases we, you know, the the child just inherits the language and culture of a parent. It just happens naturally for most children. But when you're a hearing parent of deaf children, all of a sudden there's this question, and um, the issue about where a child belongs and with whom, and not really mm-hmm. taking into account the bonds they formed and the connection and intimacy there—that um, was what I was really interested in. And I think it touched this big nerve when I met the woman who did that work, who was sort of with these adults, sort of deciding where children belong.
3: Yeah. yeah absolutely. Wow. Yeah that that touches a lot of nerves, you know. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in following the different stories and reactions of these four characters that you mentioned, you're able to explore the topic from so many different angles. Mm-hmm. How did researching and writing this book affect your own feelings? You just talked about the idea that people had ideas about that your own children didn't belong with you. How did, how did that touch um, your writing about these displaced children?
5: Yeah. I mean, I think that it was a very, it's really a close to the bone conversation oh, yes. you know, that I was having yes. as yes. I was writing this novel. Um, I couldn't really help but feel a lot of the emotionality of it. Um, but I also found it to be really important to know that, you know, the children's experience depended on certain things like what age they were when they were moved either first from their you know, in the case of the two Jewish children who are moved from, you know, they were moved from the ghetto for safekeeping with this Christian family. One of the children was only three when that happened, and so didn't really carry a lot of memories of his Jewish past. And, you know, four years later, you know, it was really murky, his memories of of his first family, whereas the sister was, you know, four years older, and she really did remember. So for her, the reclamation (laughs) movement, um, you know, was different for her, because she remembered her roots, she felt an affinity. And so it was just a completely different experience. And I thought it was really important to try to represent that there were different reactions to these movements of children, that for some, it was actually released to be taken back. For others, it was quite painful. But I was reading the um, testimonies of some of these operatives, and it is true. Like some of them, seemed the children seem to have felt that they had been saved in in yeah. some ways, and then in other cases this one man said he followed all of the children he ever moved and felt that there was real psychic damage for some of them. And that maybe in those particular cases, it just wasn't worth it, you know? And so, um, you know, and part of it is that there's this moral tension between the collective and the individual in, in, in this case where, you know, it made total sense to want to rebuild this people, but then these individual children are the ones being moved. And so I wanted that without judgment, you know, because, I also think that when we're talking about this kind of history, you know, in any sort of, um, you know, horror and genocide, et cetera, it's almost like we're without a vocabulary for these situations. Like, you know, yeah. they they didn't know what to call it. They called it reclaiming, redeeming, retrieving, <laughs> ransoming. I mean, they, they didn't even know what word to use. And, wow. um, you know, in my novel, you know, there's this conversation about, you know, stolen children but in the case of the Jewish children well they didn't have parents they didn't have papers there were questions about you know where they belonged sort of it was hard to say you know so it was a really murky and I think you just have to approach it all with so much humility and care and feeling like you know it's not so much judgment as just exploration about you know what this experience must have been like for these children in the aftermath of war
1: yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely we keep You know, we just talked with Julie about hers and my book is about children being displaced and we're watching what's going on with Ukraine. And it makes me think of um, the Native American children being sent to those schools. Yeah. And then there was a there was an operation for Cuban children, you know, years and years ago. And this idea that we get that they're puppies or that we can just like here, you adopt, you take them, you take them and that they will psychically Um, grow to be healthy individuals when they're each one is different and so one of the things we readers like so much about once we were home is that there are no clear-cut answers right Mm -hmm. there's no there's no easy path like we were talking about the children of Operation Pied Piper for some it changed their life for the better and some the worse Mm -hmm. so you're in this emotionally charged gray area But you are beginning, I think, with this question, which is, if your past is stolen, where do you belong? Can you talk about exploring that question with complicity and responsibility, belonging and identity? And was it a challenge to dive into that, as you said, murky area and complex area?
5: Yeah, well, I have to start with a disclaimer, which is that I'm a, a, a philosophy professor. Um, oh, so, I love it! So, I didn't do um, this
3: all day. I'm
5: oh, yeah. used <laughs> to this terrain in some way, um, yeah. not knowing the answer is, is uh, you know it's an, a discomfort. I'm very used to it Also, <laughs> yeah, um, and. But I do think that it was really hard to be in this position from every side, you know, to be yeah. a person who's trying to rebuild uh, people who's been lost, knowing that you're creating rupture as you go, um, you know, and to be the child who's struggling to reroute, but has all this loss and all these different situations are just incredibly complex and blurry. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that each case, you know, you want your, you want to sort of show the roundness and you want to show that everyone was in some sense righteous in what they were trying to do. Like they meant to create, um, you know, a better outcome in one way or another um, in their mind, you know, whether we agree with it or not is a completely separate story. But I was trying to really stay um, respectful of these different points of view and sort of in some ways agnostic too. Like, I don't think I could know from the outside, what it must have been like to be in that situation in terms of like the decision-making of the adults. Um, I was really trying to animate those children. That was Mm -hmm. the side I think I was really taking on was to see what would the psychological, you know, reality be for different kinds of children. And all my children, the children here, the four kids, you know, are very, very different in some ways. And um, they process things differently they are rooted by different things. And I think that's kind of what kind of moved me through, through this narrative. Mm.
4: Yeah.
2: yeah, that's incredible. Um, we've also written a beautiful memoir called If a Tree Falls, which Publishers Weekly called A Gentle Meditation on Sound and Silence, Love and Family. I mean, that is poetry right there. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that book, what inspired it, and how that journey shaped you as a writer and a person?
5: Thank you. Um, Yeah, that was my really my first writing project that wasn't academic. And I, um, it started when our daughters were born deaf and I, this this came as a surprise, we didn't expect it. Um, It was one child and then three years later, another child. So it wasn't like twins or something, but. Oh, um, wow, I was just assuming they were Yeah,
2: I wondered when you said that, that's, wow. Yeah,
5: no, we had a first daughter, Sophia was born deaf. And, um, you know, we have a family tree actually which I ended up discovering part of the memoir was, I ended up just sitting on the floor and watching Sophia and having all these like hopes and, and fears and worries and, and, you know, dreams for her. And, and I started just, I think at the beginning, just journaling, which I had never done. Um, and I found it so nourishing just to be writing and expressing and trying to find where I felt and what I believed, you know, everything that, you know, was buried in certain ways. And, um, started looking at my family tree and found that there were these deaf great great aunts and we learned this particular s- story about them which is from an aunt who was alive who said that, that she had heard that when this uh when the, these two great great aunts who were deaf um had children that they tied a string from their baby's wrist to for, to themselves like in the night so that when it was dark and they couldn't see they would feel the tug and wake up to care for these children and um it was this incredible like model of connection of mothering of hearing you know an innovation of hearing and this set me on this path because what I wanted at first I thought was that I wanted my daughters to hear but as I came to understand it I really realized that I wanted to be able to hear them and that I wasn't mm-hmm. sure I would be yeah. able to and yeah. it kind of turned it all on its head which is what I love about writing so much is that you know you start a project and you think you're doing something in particular and yeah. the deeper you go you realize that you're doing something else and that usually that something else is is really close in and psychologically you know relevant for you and that's what gets yes. you to your desk every day because you know otherwise who's going to come to your desk every day you know what I mean <laughs> unless yeah. you're really trying to express something that's meaningful to you. And um, so it was like it all turned around and uh, suddenly I was looking at what was my relationship with my mom and did I feel heard by her? And, you know, so it was all about hearing and deafness and sound and silence. and, And these things in some ways permeate once we were home. I think that it permeates me. And so everything I work on, the yellow bird sings, these you know, a daughter was in a barn with her mom in silence. Mm-hmm. She couldn't, you know, make a sound. Um, so she was noticing every little bit in the in the environment. And that's how it is when you're training, you know, when you're listening you know with a child with hearing technology you're noticing everything the faucet the you know things we don't pay attention to the eggs frying I hear it sizzle you know the yeah, water's coming yeah. through the faucet I hear that and so you start becoming this attentive person in a way that you weren't and that kind of has changed me as a writer I think it made me a writer in a certain way like someone who you know is in touch with sensory uh experience and things like that
0: yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. well Jenna.
5: Jennifer, as
0: we said, you have this book coming out in less than a week, it's out this coming Tuesday. Are you going to be on the road? Can you tell our uh, our viewers out there tonight where they can find you and how they can find where you're going to
5: be? Thank you. Yes, I am going on the road. Um, I have it on my website, which I should say we—I just rebuilt my website because it turns out it was never really attached to like the Google search engine. <laughs> it, was, it was the super cute site that I loved and built. Nice, it was so adorable, belted. yeah. And, um, anyway, I have a new site that's up. It's Jennifer-Rosner.com. Um, you know, who knew there were so many Jennifer Rosner's, but also I didn't want Jennifer Rosner kind of thing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, that's actually
2: a really good point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah,
5: yeah. Uh-huh. And so um, there's an appearances page and there's a long list of where I'm going and I'm super excited. And on launch day itself, um, there's another virtual event. Um, it's through the Stryker Center in New York, but it is virtual. So anyone could jump on and then there's other in-person and, and virtual events coming up.
0: That's well, awesome. so well before we let you go, we want to ask you a twist on the New York Times book review question about who you would have for a dinner party. So what characters across mm-hmm. both of the novels you've written, because we know you would have your daughters at the dinner party, right? So we don't even <laughs> have to ask, if, yeah. you know, people from that book would be there. But what characters from both of the novels you've written would you have for mm-hmm. a dinner party? Say, say you could choose three. Who would you have to your dinner wow. party and why? Okay.
5: <laughs> This is great, and I've never I loved it. this
3: question. I, I do.
5: Well, so I think that from once we were home, you know, I think I might have Oscar. He's this boy. He loves to um he 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 loves wood and he loves to build he whittles birds and he makes these nesting boxes so they'll fit perfectly like they belong mm. and he just is someone who I would love to talk to because he's you know Roger I'm really interested too because he's a philosopher but Oscar um I just think he'd give me a perspective that you know would be oh. the one I wouldn't know and um I don't know. You know, it's funny when you fall in love with all your characters, you really yes. just want them all at just your dinner party. Yes. And, um, yes. but, but I think that in, uh, in Yellowbird Sings, I might have, I might have the violinist um, Shira, the little girl who grows up yeah. and her teacher, Pancherpak who actually that just to say, it's a Polish name that has like 30 syllables, but I'm calling it Ponczer <laughs> <right>. um, <laughs> can't say that's exactly correct, but it's sort of right. <laughs> um, uh, Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, I might have them. There's so many people to choose from, but um, I love that question. I'm gonna keep thinking about it.
0: Uh, got to save. You've got to save seats at the table for the four of us because we would all. Yeah, we want to come, come too. I so would, so yeah, we'll, we'll be there. One day I'd love to have dinner. Yeah, so exactly. Fun. We we will make that happen, Jennifer. Well, thank yes. you so much for spending time with us tonight. It was so nice to get to know you. You and I have gotten to know each other a lot better this year, which has been such a joy and a pleasure for me. Um, me you just radiate kindness, my friend. And I am so glad that we were able to share that with our audience tonight. So yeah. thank you. We wish you um the best of luck with your book and your book tour and we're so excited that you're here. Thank you. Jo- thank you,
5: Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thank you, I hope I was, was a lovely. little coherent compared to my friend who went to bed at 1231. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It was such, gosh, I loved you
1: know. hearing your backstory and hearing oh, this struggle. It's it amazing. Very moving. Thank you. Yeah. So nice yeah. to
5: see you all. Thank you for having me. Jennifer. Thank, thank, you. thank you
0: so much. Thank you. All right. So all of you out there, do not forget that you can find all of our back episodes, hundred and sixty of them. Can you believe that? On YouTube. How have we done this so many times, ladies? It's incredible. I, I, it doesn't
2: feel like it. It's weird. Wouldn't you
0: no,
3: think I'd be better you? at it by now? <laughs> Dang, oh, we're all, this, really all of us are good I know, at it.
0: Yeah.
2: Yes.
3: Really yes at I, it.
0: you know what? I, I think the fact that we that there's always something, it's just it's who we are. We're 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 I was we're saying, it's just it's
2: it's who we are. We're not like, we're not news anchors on here. We're
0: just and, us. But, but yeah. as we should be, like, I think that's an important lesson about we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be ourselves, right? I mean, all, all of us. All I think
3: we're us. just a beautiful mess.
0: We are a beautiful mess. a beautiful mess. I love it. Absolutely.
1: All that's right, everybody. Song sing called that. Je- Wait, what Christy the, could probably sing go. it for you.
3: Jason
2: Mraz. Beautiful beautiful mess. One my, oh, 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 I love it. You're song. right. There are two. There's a country song yeah. and a Jason Mraz song. Okay.
0: be that is us.
1: Okay.
2: It applies.
0: I love it. We are a beautiful mess. Well, you can find our beautiful mess express, um, on YouTube. We are live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you will not miss a thing. Do Mm -hmm. not miss our show next Wednesday. We'll be joined by Sarah Penner and win fun. Um, you know, no spoilers. It is going to be a great show. I'm just promising all of you that now. So we'll see you back here. Same place, same time next week. Have a great night. Good night,
1: everyone.
0: Bye. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.
3: Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.